When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What the hell is going on? Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, October 14, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research. Quick reminder, our live chat function on the Real Vision site is temporarily down, so please drop your questions in the comment section on the Real Vision website or on the live chat in YouTube, or if you prefer, on Real Vision, at, on Twitter at Real Vision. Dot, uh, at Real Vision uh, with this fancy hashtag, Ask Real Vision. Smash everything on YouTube. It really helps the show. Jim, it's fantastic to be back with you. Yeah, an interesting day to be back with you. Never boring on Fridays anymore. No, it really isn't. Right out of the gate, let's just run through what's happening right now. Uh, as the numbers bounce around here a little bit at the close, S&P 500 closing out looks like 3592. It's off about 2%, 2.10% uh, on the day. Big loser of the day is the NASDAQ Composite. Uh, on my screen, I'm showing 10,321. That's off 3% on the day. We were just talking about this right before we went live. Uh, basically, we round-tripped it here in the last week. That's right. We closed um, Wednesday at 35.77 in the S&P. And then we had that wild day yesterday, and we were all trying to figure out what it meant. We got, in the last two minutes of trading, we got within three points of complete of getting all the way. We got to 35.80 within three points of Wednesday's close. So we just essentially erased all of yesterday's gates. So what's your take on the meaning of that, Jim? I, you know, I, you, usually I like to say you can't ascribe, uh, you know, too much interpretation or meaning to one day move. But when you see these wild days like this, I'm going to give you a statistic from Goldman Sachs. 40, first of all, options volume is at all-time records. And 43% of the options volume yesterday expires today. So everybody is a short-term degen playing the next couple of days. And it's all largely retail traders playing small numbers. The market's down. They all think that there's going to be a pop in the market someday. It's going to rally 40%. The bear market's going to be over. And I'm going to buy a bunch of out-of-the-money calls for a couple of pennies, and then they're going to go up 100x, and I'm going to become rich. And all of that trading is distorting the options market, which flows right back through and gamma squeezes to the cash market. And this is what you're seeing as a result of it. So talk about gamma and the gamma squeeze. This is a change uh, in Delta relative to the change in price. What does it mean for people who are not familiar with the Greeks? That the market moves hundreds of points every two minutes, <laughs> up and down and then down and then up. If you're not into the options market and you're just wondering, why every five minutes does it seem like it did more than it used to do in a day? It is because of the relationships between the options prices and the underlying stock prices. And when you get a flood of options trading that pushes the options price out of line, that gets arbitrageurs to step in to try and bring it back in the line, which creates stock movements too. And I might add, Ash, yesterday was an all-time volume day for the S&P 500 futures contract as well, too. 
Yeah, really interesting. And that's really it in a nutshell. That's why we see this whipsawing back and forth. Uh, cash markets becoming relatively smaller relative uh, to those derivatives. Yes. You know, and the thing about this is, is that, and I'm not trying to diminish retail traders. They're free to do what they want. But when institutional traders were the dominant in the market, they would trade more deliberately at the money. And at the money means the strike price is very close to where the price of the option is. Whereas retail traders tend to trade very short term, like I said, the options that expire every Friday, and they tend to trade way out of the money, um, you know, and, and buy like lottery tickets is basically what they're doing. They're hoping that they're going to pay 10 cents for an option. There'll be a rally and it'll be worth 90 cents tomorrow. So they'll get a 9x gain. And in theory, that's possible. But in reality, you know, it, it's kind of like trying to win in Vegas. In theory, yeah, I can go, you know, I can go pick red and black and come out a winner, but in reality, it's very hard. It sure is. Talking of which, one of the things that retail traders are watching here today is bank earnings. And I just wanted to run through this because there's some interesting points here uh, out today and some, some key takeaways here from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, a little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, revenue is up 10% at JP Morgan, a uh, billion dollars on losses on securities at JPM, a billion dollar loss at JPM on securities. Investment banking fees were crushed, crushed. The Wall Street Journal actually said crushed, Jim. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised that they should be crushed because, uh, Ash, between you and me, don't tell anybody, but investment bankers and merger deals tend to be the biggest momentum players ever. You get all these bankers together and they put together all these spreadsheets in this analysis, but if the if number go up and then they start to hyperventilate and get excited and think about the, the next trip to Aspen that they can afford uh, or maybe the big house in Aspen they can afford, they do the deal. So when the price goes down, I'm not surprised when fall, when prices fall, I'm not surprised investment banking fees get crushed. I think it's Jackson Hole now. Yes, you might be. It might be. What do you call a person just getting by in Jackson Hole? A millionaire. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes homeless. It's the uh, it's just extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. Time out there right now. So I, I'll back to the Wall Street Journal analysis on earnings here. Morgan Stanley, just to come back to that theme that you were talking about, uh, IB revenue, investment banking revenue at Morgan Stanley off 55% from prior. Yes, yes. You know, and again. You know, um, go back and uh, just underscore, go back and look at what the investment banking revenues were like in the fourth quarter of last year. You know, 4,800 and the S&P, all these stocks look really cheap, uh, you know, and then everybody wants to do deals. But, you know, then when we get down to 3,600, all of a sudden, they don't look so cheap anymore. That's the kind of the way that the market always works, whether you're an investment banker or you're a retail trader or anybody in between. Yeah, by the way, back to Morgan Stanley, a miss over there. Profits down 29% this quarter. I'm not surprised by that because you saw the markets fall and they do a lot of proprietary trading. For those of you, that's a fancy word to say they hold a lot of securities in their own account that they trade in and out of. And those securities fall in value and that impacts their trading accounts. Yeah. Also from Wall Street Journal, Wells Fargo. Wells also missed on profit, but a beat on revenue. Uh, there's also a $2 billion charge with a B, $2 billion charge uh, that, according to the journal, executives haven't explained yet. That's interesting. You know, I'm, I don't want to get myself in trouble with my friends at Wells, but boy, executives taking charges and things that no one can quite explain, it, it, it always seems to come back to that name more and more in the last five or six years. Yeah, I mean, a billion here, a billion there. Before you know it, it's real money. Right, exactly. Not to mention, you know, what, whether or not um, you've opened up 2 million uh, fraudulent accounts like they did a couple of years ago. Oof.
Uh, City Group, City Profits fell 25%. Revenue rose 6%, which was a beat. Uh, finally, City has set a timeline for exiting their business in Russia. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of people are exiting their businesses in Russia. But uh, as far as that goes, that's more of a headline than anything else. They weren't making a whole lot of money on it. But Ash, let me, I, I got a chart and I wanted to throw it up here if we can of uh, bank yeah, deposit rates, because this is probably the biggest macro thing you could take out of what's going on here. And the chart shows basically bank deposit rates in orange and in blue, it shows money market rates. And in the bottom half in red, what it shows is the spread between the two. Now, back in March, bank deposit rates, that's what you get your earnings, the, the interest rate on your checking account and the interest rate in a money market fund were zero. They were both the same. Today, bank deposit rates have gone from zero to about 15 or 20 basis points, basically hardly moved. And money market rates are pushing 3% right now. So why is there this enormous spread? Well, Jamie Dimon was asked about it. And um, just to uh, <coughs> read, <coughs> read his, uh, he said it's a function of a competitive environment and he thinks that deposit rates are lagging. Now, let me, let me translate that for you. 15 years of QE has so over-reserved the banks, they don't need any more deposits. So if you keep your money in a bank, you're going to get zero. If you move your money to a money market fund, you can get pushing 3% and probably more as we go higher. I suspect we're going to continue to see a mass exodus out of banks and towards money funds. Uh, and what that means is that money is technically leaving the banking system. It is a non-bank asset. It could come back. It's not part of the banking system. So everybody worries about QT. And what does QT mean? Ah, that's a piker's game. Look at the money leaving the banking system for money market funds. Uh, that is trillions of dollars, orders of magnitude larger than what we've seen out of QT. Now, the hope is, well, that money's just next to the banking system in a money market fund. It always flow back into the banks. But in order for that to happen, they got to raise deposit rates. Why would I take my money if I'm getting three, three and a half percent of money fund and put it back in my checking account that's giving me five basis points? Well, I would maybe if they gave me three percent. They didn't even have to give me three and a half. But the, the, I don't see that money flowing back until the banks feel like they need deposits. But they don't. And so a lot of money is leaving the banking system. This could be part of the liquidity problems that we're seeing in the market because remember, banks create money. Money market funds only invest securities. And so when money leaves the banking system, that's what we used to call high-powered uh, high reserves in order to create more loans and create more money. And that is really crimping the banks right now. So it is an artifact of all of the years and years of QT. There's $3 trillion of reserves in the banks, even though a lot of money is left. And it's just more than they need. And they're still giving you zero. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
Boy, Jim, that's such an interesting uh, take and analysis on what's happening right now. I have sort of two key takeaways from that. The first is that it must be relatively easy, in fact, relatively transparent uh, to measure those uh, the flow of funds uh, into those money market funds because they're reported fairly regularly. So we'll get a pretty good read on that. But well, they're reported daily. They're reported yeah. daily. Yes. Yeah. So we'll get that transparent data out. But the second point, you, you, you sort of make this case of uh, if banks begin to need uh, to, to get those deposits, they can obviously raise their rates and become more competitive with money for market funds and pull it back in. But we're talking about bank earnings, Jim. If that happens, those beats that we saw may get erased. We see revenue uh, rising. That would be about com compression of net interest margins when they have to pay out more money to depositors, wouldn't it? Yes, because right now the banks have the sweetest deal in the world. They have all these extra reserves, $3 trillion worth of reserves, and the Fed pays interest on reserves you know, to the tune of uh, 10 basis points under the top end of the funds rate, which is a fancy way of saying 3.15%. The funds rate is between three and three and a quarter. So they pay 10 basis points above the top end. And the banks are making billions of dollars a day. How do we know that? Because the Fed in the last couple of weeks, as rates have gotten over three and a half, they're starting to lose money at the Fed at a rate of about $2 billion a day. Now, what does that mean that they're losing money at the Fed? Well, that's what they're paying to the banking system is $2 billion a day. So the banks are making a tremendous amount of money off the Fed. Now, if they raise their deposit rates you know, to three and they're getting 315 from the Fed, there's a positive spread there, but it goes away. But back to that, right. the, the Fed losing money. Uh, Joseph Wang, the Fed guy, really did, did a blog post on this last week, explained it very well. They'll just create this thing called a deferred asset and give it to the Treasury. Hey, Treasury, we owe you a gazillion dollars. And someday in the future, when we've got a gazillion dollars, we'll pay you that gazillion dollars. And the Treasury's like, well, the Fed's the safest credit in the world, and they'll, they'll play that game. So it doesn't mean the Fed's going to have to take a loss or sell securities or print money, but it's all part of the opaque counting in a shell game that they've been playing because of QE. But the fact of the matter is it does expose how much money the banks make off the Fed by raising interest rates and keeping deposit rates at zero. Even if money's leaving, still got trillions of dollars. They're making 3%. That's a lot of money for the banking system when you add it to their bottom line. Uh, but still, Jim, as you describe it, the Fed blog post, is there something that we should be uncomfortable about with the idea of essentially these liabilities passing between the central bank and the treasury and what the implications might be for that uh, in terms of the global economic framework? Yes, we should be very uncomfortable with it because at the end of the day, this is, the, something, this is an experiment that's never been tried by a bunch of people that have modeled it out on spreadsheets that have probably got errors in their spreadsheet. But don't worry, they're the Fed and they're the Treasury and they've got it all figured out. And you could rest assured that this won't be a problem. Now, of course, I'm being a little bit sarcastic. And the reason I say that is because when they raise rates, lower rates, at least they had 100 years of experience doing that. And right. they've been through crashes and booms and busts with that experience. This is all new. And so whenever it's, something's all new and they start pointing at, um, you know, these things that, you know, don't pass the smell test to regular people, it's a high wire act. And we got to hope they get it right. And we've seen cases where they haven't gotten it right. Look at the ECB with negative interest rates. Look at Japan with negative interest rates. They told us that that was a good thing and it wasn't a problem and it wouldn't create dislocations. 
They have nothing but dislocations in those countries right now, especially among their monetary systems. And I do think that some of that does trace back to the highly distortive practice of having negative interest rates for a couple of years. And so this experiment that we're doing now with interest on reserves and losing money and deferred assets to the treasury and don't worry, we'll pay you back at another day is, you know, I understand what they're trying to do. And in theory, it all makes sense and it could and it shouldn't be a problem. They had practiced it a few times through a couple of cycles. I'd feel a lot better as opposed to this is their first attempt at it. Well, nothing's ever gone wrong that's been modeled in Excel. Exactly, exactly. I don't think there's ever been a case of an Excel model going awry. <laughs> Listen, while we're talking about macro, I want to jump back to some analysis from Matt Grossman from the journal today, also uh, on bank earnings. But this is the broader macroeconomic framework, some of the takeaways uh, from the journal on this, and I think they're really interesting points. Uh, first, mortgage lending is under pressure, probably no surprise there, uh, with rates at 20-year highs, a hair under 7% right now at average. Uh, Banks are setting aside higher loan loss reserves. This was a consistent theme uh, throughout many of the earnings calls that we uh, that were, were out today. Uh, customers are becoming more reliant on consumer credit. Uh, and bank executives are saying, in essence, the world isn't falling apart yet. Uh, but I want to end on this sobering uh, comment from Jamie Dimon today. Quote, we're just getting closer to what you and I might consider bad events, which calls back to his prediction uh, for, quote, an economic hurricane. Jim, uh, how do you contextualize uh, this framework linking bank earnings to the broader macro economy? Well, first of all, you don't need to use the word sobering with Jamie Dimon. You just need to say Jamie Dimon comments and sobering is always implied within one of those comments. Um, I do think though, what he's gonna say is I've got uh, two other charts. I've got a chart of the total return through yesterday of the bond market year to date. This is the global aggregate index, $50 trillion of money. It is down 21% year to date. Now, I've talked to a lot of bond people about this. And you know, my favorite comment by one of them over the summer was, if you had told me that by October that the global aggregate index was going to be down 21%, I would have told you, you don't understand how the bond market works. It doesn't do that. Well, it just did. And then the other one is the MOVE index. That is the Merrill Option Volatility Estimate. It was developed by Harley Bassman when he was at Merrill Lynch. Uh, now he's at Simplify uh, Asset. And uh, it it's basically the VIX of the bond market. It is at the one of the highest readings we've ever seen. There was only one plot point on March 9th, 2020 that has been higher than anything we've seen in that index back to the global financial crisis in 2009. What this suggests is what Diamond was talking about um, is that the bond market is too big, too opaque, and too complicated for even Jamie Diamond to tell you over there, those British pensions with liability-driven investing are going to blow up next week. Nobody knows. It's too big, it's too opaque, and it's too complicated. But when you look at the losses that the bond market is, has, has you look at the volatility that the bond market has. And even I could turn to you then and say, this is the environment, I'm gonna use some technical languages here, where shit goes sideways. And some shit has been going sideways and I expect more shit to go sideways as well. And that's really all you can do. And so, yes, I do think, I, I would tell you that if, if we're done blowing stuff up right now, and the market stays at these points, that would be the surprise. Uh, 
What's going to blow up next? Like I said, Diamond doesn't know what's going to blow up next. I don't know. Nobody knows. It's too big, too opaque, and too complicated. But when you look at those losses and that volatility, you know that there's a world of hurt out there in the fixed income market. And it's you know only a matter of time before we see another body floats to the surface. Uh, talking of bodies floating to the surface and the UK, uh, you showed the chart. I have something I want to show here on screen. This is our tweet of the day. Uh, and I'm going to just sort of read the tweet for people who are listening uh, on to this as a podcast. Uh, the tweet says, unbelievable. The Daily Star has a live feed seeing whether or not Liz Truss will outlive a lettuce. And the picture is uh, of a photograph of Liz Truss uh, next to a head of lettuce, which the star, this is a uh, one of the British tabloids, is running. Uh, obviously, the question there looming whether or not this government will survive. Ash, the London bookies are taking book. And right now, the lettuce is getting more money than Liz Truss. Uh, so <laughs> that's the way it kind of works over there. When when people are making book that you won't survive ahead of lettuce, you are in trouble. Look, she's in a deep world of hurt right now. Um, in theory, as a conservative member of the Tory party, she's in favor of lower taxes and less regulation. That is a bedrock of the Tory party. But when you roll that policy out, look, and I'm not against that policy either, I should say. But when you roll that policy out, days after the central bank, the Bank of England, your largest buyer of British gilts, their treasury securities, turns into a seller, quantitative tightening. And then you say, by the way, we're going to cut taxes and we're going to borrow more money and compete with the Bank of England as they sell securities and we sell more securities. Yeah, you could see how the bond market doesn't like it. And then you have these liability-driven investing pension plans, which is basically a scheme set up that assumes, all you need to know about the scheme here is it was set up assuming we were in a world of 1% inflation, one-ish percent interest rates, and a central bank that would never let anything happen in terms of volatility or rates rise. They were always going to be stuck there at one. Inflation was always going to justify them being at one. And they were going to be very sleepy and very, very quiet down there. So we set up schemes of leverage and more risk taking to try and juice returns. Well, now we're in an environment of higher inflation and, and central banks fighting inflation and a lot more volatility. And those schemes don't work. And so everything has blown up on them. She comes out she fires the chancellor of the exchequer, um, and she basically then is asked three questions in an eight-minute press conference where the questions are, well, why do you think firing the chancellor is going to fix the problem? Aren't you the problem? And she had no answer for them, and then she walked off the stage. So, yeah, I could see why the London bookies are telling me that the money's coming in on the lettuce right now. If I was to bet on it, I'd probably be long lettuce, too. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. 
Jim, about two minutes left only. But I want to I want to call back to something that uh, you know I was tweeting about this last week, and I I stayed in and watched a conversation that you had with Ralph Powell uh, right on Real Vision on the Essential tier. Uh, really fantastic content. The stuff that we do best here at Real Vision, and I just wanted to highlight a couple of the points that you made that I found was in, in, very interesting. You talked about this idea about how stuff is ready to break. The Fed is preparing to throw one and a half million people out of the jobs market, and you essentially said, look, we're moving into a different world here in the same way that we did after World War II. The days of cheap labor are over. The days of cheap energy are over. Inflation is not necessarily going back to 2%. It may hang around at 4 or 5% on a secular level. That means rates need to stay higher for longer. A pretty, a pretty gloomy prescription, Jim. Yeah, it, it is gloomy, but let me spin the same thing a little bit more positively. I do think that the era of cheap labor, that means that, you know, employees have the upper hand over their boss. And you've seen that with quiet quitting and with the wage increases that we've seen. Cheap goods, you can't, you can't depend on China anymore if you're in a just-in-time inventory. Cheap energy, again, that's a throw to, you know, Europe. Europe was basically, Europe manufacturing was basically all green, all socialist, all woke. And the only thing that made it work was they were getting gas from uh, Russia, natural gas that is, at practically no, practically free. And, they, they, and the biggest input into manufacturing is your energy input. And now that's over with too. That doesn't mean it's over with forever. It means that there are other avenues of cheap labor, cheap goods, and cheap energy. Maybe in the United States, if we were to, you know, uh, have more natural gas drilling uh, as one example. But we have to acknowledge that this this era is over. We have to acknowledge that a significant investment in spending needs to take place to restructure the economy. And then we could get back to those eras again in several years. Now, that means there's going to be yeah. extraordinary opportunities for investors but the other problem we have is what I talked about with Raul is that at, in the example I use is 1947. Everybody knew the world changed. Everybody knew we were going into a new world. No one in 1947 said, when am I getting my job back making Sherman tanks? That era was over. Right. But in 2022, Dave Solomon at Goldman Sachs is saying, everybody back to the office five days a week. It's no different than 2019. It is. And so once we start to acknowledge that and we move forward, look, there's going to be extraordinary opportunities for investors. And let me throw out another outside the box thought for you. Real what quick, is investing, we've got to, go ahead. Yep. What has investing been in the last 20, 25 years? It's been macro investing, buy spiders, buy broad-based ETFs. I think in the future, it's going to be not just buy energy, it's which energy company you're going to buy because some will, be, some will benefit in this environment and others won't. We're going to go back to the 70s in 80s when it was with um, Peter Lynch, stock picking might become in vogue again. It has been out of vogue for a couple of decades. Yeah, by the way, it's, uh, two protesters at the National Gallery in London today throwing, uh, I think, Heinz uh, tomato soup onto the Van Gogh painting sunflowers in protest uh, of oil consumption. You know, unfortunately, we're gonna get more of that and I think it's it's misplaced. I would rather that they were to see that we need to have oil in order to survive and demand that places like Europe and the United States do it. If you've ever been in an oil oil derrick or an oil platform in the United States, it's hospital clean. But the way they do it in Venezuela and Iran is an ecological mess. So I'd rather see it taken away from them 
and do it in the West where we do it cleaner, but they don't think that way, unfortunately. Yeah, very well said. Just a couple of key takeaways here from this conversation. An extraordinary period for banks making money hand over fist right now uh, because of the spreads between the rates that they're paying on funds from the Fed and the rates that they're paying out to customers, the net interest margin there. Uh, there's some challenges that you see ahead uh, potentially here because the Fed has never done this before in terms of making this transition from the environment that they were in uh, to the environment that we're moving into. A couple of comments on the bond market. Uh, you you have uh, you know essentially some very negative takes there. We've seen uh, those charts that you put up pretty sobering. Uh, and the thesis here that it's becoming too complex for anyone to understand, for the market participants uh, to understand, uh, also a very sobering one. Uh, and finally, my third takeaway, and I thought this was really interesting, Jim, and you phrased it really well, which was this idea, if we don't see stuff blowing up again, that would be what surprised you. Yeah, and don't forget to call Ladbrokes, the London bookie, and go long lettuce, and you've got them all covered. <laughs> Final question for you, Jim, before we wrap here. When are you going to come and join us on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing? Oh, you know, I, I'd love to join you on the Crypto Daily Briefing. Let's see if we could uh, find a, a, you know, a, a time and a place, and maybe if I could keep my streak, because you have me on, on Fridays, and it seems like, you know, everything hits the fan on Fridays, and it, it's very interesting to talk to you. Maybe something will happen in crypto that we could have something because right now volumes are down, markets grinding sideways, and a lot of people are getting very antsy in crypto. But that's kind of the way that you know bear markets end. They end not with a bang, but with a whimper. And the crypto market's starting to whimper. The mm. TradFi markets are not. So, you know, I think they might be closer to a low. I'm not saying that their low is nearby, but in general, they think they might be closer to a low than the TradFi markets. I'm looking at coin market cap right now. Uh, bigger, bigger changes uh, in terms of price movement on the uh, S and P 500 today uh, than in Ethereum or Bitcoin on a trailing 24-hour basis. Don't hear that a lot. Yeah, not only that, if you measure it as a, a realized volatility measure, this is one of the rare periods where the S and P has higher volatility than Bitcoin. It's only happened four times in the last 10 years for a couple of days, and it started on Wednesday of this week again for the first time since 2020. Yeah, really a very interesting point and an important one to end on. Jim Bianco, always a pleasure to do this with you. Go long lettuce. Long lettuce. Thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back Monday with Dave Floyd. In the meantime, check out Real Vision's newest show, The Collector. In this series, we want to emphasize the fun and adventure of deploying your hard-earned money. In this episode, we explore world, excuse me, we explore we explore the world of classic cars. Thanks everyone so much for joining us. Have a good weekend, everybody. When it comes to barnstorming classic car investments, this has surely got to be on the list. 100 million US dollars. <laughs> these are investments that are driven by passion. I love these. Childhood memories. My dad had one. Fun. <laughs> this is a real beast. One of those cars that everybody loves. What makes it so special? Welcome to The Collectors. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.